for mutual upward building. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything, indeed, is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble for what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who, ha who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. So I've got to admit, this has been a very difficult, um, complex kind of week. And I came out of the first section where it was really talking about my Christian liberty. Right? And then now this week, it feels like my Christian liberty is being limited. And every one of us loves liberty. We love freedom. We're the, the home of the free and you know, the land of brave soldiers. They fought for us and we got this freedom. We got this liberty that we can live into with gusto, right? And now the Apostle Paul is saying, hold on a second. You need to limit your freedom. I'm going, hold on. It just does not feel right. Especially where you got scripture that says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So how does this section jive? Martin Luther, the reformer, in one of his foundational works called The Freedom of Christ, says this. And it's, it's kind of, it handles both of these subjects. He says, a Christian man is the most free Lord, a free, free man of all, and subject to none. Let me say that again. That's the first half of it. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. He's subject to none. Comma. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. How do you like that tension? I am the most free person because I'm in Christ. I have this amazing freedom and I am subject to none. But on the same side, or the other side of the coin, I am the most dutiful servant of all and I am subject to every one of you. So, this quote is a summation of this revelation that we find here in Romans chapter 14. In verses 1 through 12, Paul declares this. Listen, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all, and he is subject to absolutely no one. But then in verses 13 through 23, he asserts the equally yet paradoxically true <coughs> statement, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. The first half of Romans 14 is concerned with your Christian liberty. And the second half of Romans 14 is concerned with your Christian charity. How we live together in Christian community. The heart of Romans chapter 15 and 16 is captured in a, a well-known statement. In the essentials, unity. 
in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So the vision embedded in this kind of mantra is that the Church of Jesus Christ is to be unified on the things that really, really matter while allowing freedom on things that are of lesser importance. And don't hear me say that they don't matter, but they're of lesser importance than those essentials. Making sure that we wrap all this up, surround it all up with love that is to characterize the people of God. You have been saved. You've been saved apart from your work. What an amazing gift. So now we wrap all this up and just say, we live in this charity. So this mantra acknowledges also that Christian living involves this continual tension. This tension between the essentials and non-essentials of the faith. And that's where it's hard, right? I want a list. I want a list. Anybody else? Tell me what I can say. No! Forget you. I'm drinking this. Or I need to be able to wag my finger and say, no, you may not drink that. You may not eat that. I want a list. But this says, no, there is a tension, relational tension, a theological tension, an ethical tension that we together live in. Learning how to navigate essentials and non-essentials is critical for a body, a family. And as you move into Thanksgiving, and as you move into Christmas, this is equally important. How do we live, especially here as a family? How do we live this out with our families? How do we learn to navigate the essentials, the criticals, the importance, the things that I will die on the hill for, and the non-essentials? Most of us elevate the non-essentials pretty high, don't we? But this text says, no, no, no. Know what is essential. And remember this, you are the most free person out there. At the same time, you are a servant of God. And you are duty-bound. You're helpless. Romans 14 and 15 is relevant where we live, and, and it is something that we need to keep thinking and praying and talking about. So for those of you who were not here last week, you need to understand what, what we covered because it is critical and it ties to what we talked about, what we'll be talking about today. The first 12 verses are foundation. So let me review just a few short points about last week. First, the target of Romans 14 and 15 is found in, in Romans 15, 5 and 6. Here's what it says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, right? That's how we're doing it. That together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. That's, that's kind of the epicenter, the epic, the, the point where all things kind of come together. And so unity here for Paul is really this, this ultimate goal. And so, but the problem in the church was likely related to new Jewish converts who were really having a hard time of emotionally letting go of their previous standards related to eating meat, drinking wine, and <coughs> celebrating certain days. They're coming into this new body with their, their background and saying, I don't know how to live here. And I'm caught in this tension. And it's creating a unity problem within the church. So pride, we can find, easily can divide a church. Pride can divide a church as, as non-meat eaters judge meat eaters. And as meat eaters have a certain disdain and pride towards the non-meat eaters. And you can feel that tension of, man, I'm better than you, and shame on you. So the, the first two principles are found in Romans 14, verse 1, and it's repeated again in Romans 15, verse 7. And it encourages the church to welcome each other. And I talked last week, it's not just the hospitality, handing out bulletins, or moving down in the pew, kind of welcoming each other. No, this kind of welcoming each other is the opening your heart to each other. And saying, I am giving of myself, and I want you in my heart. So the first principle, this is the first principle that we saw last week. And you can, yep, thank you, Donna. <laughs> welcome. We are to welcome one another despite disagreements. I think this is a great even marriage principle, right? You welcome one another despite disagreements. That would really cut down on marriage counseling. I'm opening my heart to you despite where we stand on these things. I also cautioned us to be careful that we don't use labels, labels like weaker or stronger brother out of context. Because we're really good at out of context. And uh, because we can very quickly think that the, the, the more conservative, tighter brother is really the weak brother. Or as we'll see today, that defining a stumbling, we can define stumbling blocks in ways that Paul never, ever, ever intended us to use that word, that phrase. So there's principles to be gleaned, and we need to limit, you need to limit Romans 14 to its context. And when it comes to the general applicability of Romans uh, 14 through 15, I talked about the importance of doing good theological or ethical triage, to determine not just what is true, but determining how to rank things of importance. Last week, and I got a, a wonderful text from uh, Matt Creevy and his Mitchell community to show that they're actually applying this. Uh, but we use this picture, start with the first one, 
we start off with the absolutes, the core, those things that, that this is what it means to be a Christian. Heaven and hell kind of issues. This is critical. These are absolutes. We will not negotiate. We will take the hill and die on these things. But the next one is this next outer ring that says these are convictions. And these convictions are informed by scripture. And some of these issues are more, more strongly convictions than other convictions. These are the things that denominations are often formed around. Are they absolutes? No. But they're on theological preference and convictions and understandings and hermeneutics. If you want to know what that is, look it up in the dictionary. But they're the ways that we read into scripture and see how this all works out. And therefore, it informs the way that I feel in my heart. But then there's that next layer of preferences. And these are less clear uh, when it comes to scripture. And they are more about your personal application of biblical truth. We talked about how legalism, being a legalist, is treating a preference as if it is an absolute. And liberalism, being a liberal, is treating an absolute as if it is just a preference. It doesn't really matter. So not every controversial thing is merely a preference. Hear that. Depending on the person, depending on the issue, some things can be a preference and some things can be more like convictions. And the key and the caution here is to be sure that your emotional, hear that, emotional connection to that conviction for your soul and how you treat others is appropriate, biblical, and thoughtful. Romans 14 is dealing with an issue that is emotionally very close, very close to a preference. It is a strongly held conviction that was too close even for, to be an absolute. And Paul is trying to help the weaker brother grow in his faith while encouraging the stronger brother to be sensitive, be careful. Both brothers are reminded, hey, it's just food. It's just drink. It's just a day. And that leads us to the second principle that we see in 13 through 23. That was my whole lead up. The second principle is this, that we are to be considerate of one another's spiritual needs. And this is really big. And it's really hard. This is where the rubber meets the road and the tension comes in. Throughout this section, Paul just repeats himself again for emphasis and for application so that we see a few points emerge from similar passages. Two of these verses communicate the importance of considering the effects of one's actions. The, what, what are the effects? What's the living out of my, my convictions on the spiritual life of my brother or my sister? We've got to be thinking outward, moving out. It's not just me and my personal liberty. I've got to think, how does my personal liberty and my convictions and my faith, how does it affect other people? Romans 14, 13. Therefore, 
Let us not pass judgment on, a, on another any longer. In other words, Paul's saying, stop it! Stop it! But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the man. Or Romans 14.20 kind of scares the living daylights out of me. Do not, for the sake of food, or fill in the blank, destroy the work of God. Don't let this destroy the work of God. So both verses identify that welcoming one another is more than just an orientation of your heart, right? It involves a very real practical step outward that creates a spiritual issue for another believer. Paul discourages actions that create stumbling blocks that would be a hindrance or would destroy the work of God. And in verse 15, he uses the word even greed to describe the kind of conduct that should be avoided. There's an important play of words that Paul even uses in verse 13. The word judgment is the same word as decide. Instead of casting judgment on others, we should make a personal judgment not to hurt others for our freedom. In other words, we should use the emotional energy that might be directed towards simply judging others to instead be concerned with the spiritual well-being of others. So last week's message emphasized the importance of your freedom, your, your Christian liberty that has been bought with Christ. You have this freedom, and all God's people just should yell out, Amen! Yes, I have this freedom. It's been purchased. It is for me. And Paul is very clear, and he should be, we, he will be here even later on. We're going to see that meat, wine, and days is really not a spiritual issue. It's not. However, how that issue is handled, how it is handled certainly is a critical issue. Do you understand? The issue that Paul is talking about is like, Paul's mom, this is not a salvation issue. Don't put it in the absolute. And you better be careful about the conviction area. But by the same token, you've got to be careful, too, how you express and desire to express for the sake of the well-being of other people. So as we start to dig into this passage, you need to keep this principle front and center in your mind. Paul is doing some theological and some ethical triage. He clearly identified that Christian liberty is important. After all, Christ died for it. But it's not ultimate. Right? There are limits to our freedom. Because something more important than freedom is at stake. Freedom has some limits. For the Christian, the principle is simply that my right to ex my right to exercise my liberty ends. My right to express my liberty ends when it creates a serious spiritual harm 
from my brother or sister in Christ. Hear that. When it creates harm. Not when it bumps up against my preferences, my likes or dislikes, but when it actually creates harm. Your brother or sister is grieved. That is what Paul is saying. Be careful there. And then he talks about this word stumbling block. What does he mean by stumbling block? I have heard that abused and misused a gajillion times in the church. And it's an important question about what does this mean because it is critical to the limitations of freedom to understand and define what a stumbling block or a hindrance or destroying the works of God really means. Christian liberty stops where a stumbling block begins. So let me give you a few thoughts. First, we have got to come back to the definition of what is a weaker brother to understand what is a stumbling block. Remember that in Romans 14 and 15, it is someone who is younger in the faith, spiritually in need of strengthening, younger in the faith, Spiritually need of strengthening and fundamentally wrong on the issue at hand. He's a weaker brother. He's struggling in his faith. He needs to be encouraged. And quite possibly, he may be wrong on this issue, whatever the issue is. Secondly, as we'll see in a moment, the weaker brother is significantly harmed by a stumbling block. Significantly harmed. Paul says that the brother is grieved by what he is eaten, and he is destroyed even by this action. This line, strong language would point toward an issue that causes someone to go back to their former ways or perhaps even reject the gospel itself. So a stumbling block is more than just someone being offended or disagreeing with you. It's more than that. A stumbling block creates a significant spiritual devastation. That's what a stumbling block, it creates a spiritual devastation. The third, there seems to be an implied social pressure connected to whatever is going on here. Paul commends private faith in verse 22, right? He says, the faith that you have uh, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. While also saying, it is good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother in verse 21. Therefore, I'm seeing that this stumbling block was putting a brother or sister in a situation where they felt pressure implied or direct to violate their conscience. I feel pressure to do what you're doing, and for my heart and my soul, I don't feel this is right, so quit doing this Christian peer pressure on me. Don't make me do what my conscience says is wrong. The stumbling block applies to non-private or social scenarios that create a conscience issue for a weaker brother. Therefore, I would define a stumbling block as this. You can write it down. A stumbling block is the putting a brother or sister 
under social pressure to do something that he feels is sinful. Putting a brother or sister under social pressure to do something that he feels is sinful. It's a situation where a brother's faith in the gospel or how that gospel is expressed in the church through relationships has a potential to be seriously harmed. Paul's main concern here is the balance of not allowing your Christian liberty to be needlessly, to be limited needlessly on one hand, and not allowing a brother to be needlessly harmed spiritually on the other. The freedom has to reflect a theological and ethical uh, triage set in the context of your love for your brother or sister. So welcoming a brother means that there are times when limiting your personal freedom is morally right. Even when it's not really a, a mor there's not a moral issue at hand. In other words, you can be sinful in how you handle a non-sinful issue. Mm. That's good. You can be sinful in how you handle a non-sinful issue. It's an issue of how you love your brother. So there's reasons why we are to limit our freedom. And Paul kind of goes a little deeper. Um, so let's let's look at how we handle this. Romans 14 and 15 uh, shows us how to handle those situations that are close and not exactly the same, you know, this and that. How do we handle these things? So first, first thing to consider relates to a basic understanding of ethics and, and morals. Some ethical situations are really situational. And for some of you, you're going, no, 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 no. I want a black and white list. List it out. Don't give me this situational ethics kind of thing. That is your life. Your life is situational ethics. You are trying to figure out, in my unbelieving family, how do I work out my faith with them in a different way than I might work out my faith over here? How do I work out in this situation, in this context, my work in the public market? And how do I do everything is situational ethics. So Paul identifies that there are scenarios uh, where right and wrong are determined by the individual and even the context. And for us, many of you, you're going, hold on a second. Christianity is not black and white, right? <laughs> That's what some of you are going, give me a list. <laughs> I want black and I want white. I want to know exactly how to vote, who to vote for, when to vote. I want to know exactly how much I should tithe and how much I should spend on my boat. Anybody got a boat? For vacation. No? <laughs> uh, how much I should tithe and how much I should have on a lake house? Anybody have a lake house? No, shoot. <laughs> Staying in Frankfurt again. <laughs> so there are times where ethics are appropriately situational. Listen to Romans 14 14. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. 
pop that away. There's nothing unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. That's situational ethics. Or what about 14 verse 20? Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Indeed, everything is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. That's situational ethics. Notice that food is not fundamentally, and drink is not fundamentally, and days are not fundamentally a moral issue. Paul has clearly sided, I believe, with the stronger brother as being right in, by virtue of, of the pure morality that is being considered. He's saying, listen, bro, I'm with you. I am with you. What you are drinking and what you are eating in the days you're celebrating, it is not a theological or moral issue. I'm with you here. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. However, there's more at stake than food or drink or days. Paul highlights another moral issue, one that he's going to fully unpack when we get to the end of this section. But for now, it is simply important to recognize that moral decisions are not just about the issue alone. There are often contextual dynamics that are going on. Things at play here, there, and everywhere. How you might apply it to this situation might apply differently in this situation. Even though everything is technically clean, according to Paul, it is wrong for the one who thinks it's wrong. What? And to make someone stumble. Unity in the church happens in the midst of this messy and complex situation. The church will always be filled with these scenarios. Paul's solution was not to make a comprehensive list. Sorry, Jimmy. There's no comprehensive list. Yeah. You can't get away with this, and you can't apply it this way. Paul's not giving a comprehensive list to bind everybody to. It would make things really neat, right? Be clean. We could put our list on the outside the doors and say, all right, if you follow these rules, welcome. I'm going to welcome you. But Paul doesn't do that. He allows for some tension to be worked out in love. And that leads us to our second point. Your freedom is less important than your brother or sister's soul. We need to consider in dealing with these issues that there's a weighted priority of your personal freedom versus the impact on a brother's soul. Paul cherishes and he values and he elevates his freedom in Christ. He does that regularly all throughout. He was a joyful, happy, celebratory Christian. Apostle planting churches in all kinds of different contexts. And he even goes, goes so far to say nothing is unclean in itself. Nothing. Can you imagine what that did to the, the Jewish culture? All of a sudden he's going, they're going, what? Okay. We could not eat bacon. And now you're saying I can eat bacon? No way. And the rest of the Gentiles are going, bacon! You know, they're celebrating, going, yeah, it's good, and it's not unclean, it's so 
unimportant. You know, we got to keep all in mind what he's saying. He does set boundaries for freedom by establishing that it is not more valuable. Your freedom is not more valuable than the spiritual health of your brother or sister. He says in Romans 14, 15, For if your brother is grieved, grieved by what you eat, remember this is the weaker brother, the immature brother, the one who has a lot of growing and he's got some background, and if he's grieved by what you're, you're eating, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Or verse 21. It is not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Walking in love, not destroying a brother, and not doing anything that causes your brother to stumble are clearly more important than the expression, expression of one's freedom. Even if you are technically right, you can still be wrong. Therefore, there are situations where restricting your freedom is not only wise, but it is absolutely the right thing to do. The third thing, loving one's brother is not, not the only high value that is at play here. The witness of the gospel in terms of what people think about the kingdom of God is also an issue that we need to be thinking about. Don't sacrifice the witness of the gospel. See that in verses 16 and 16, 17, and 18. Don't let what you do regard uh, that do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So Christian brothers and sisters need to be reminded of what really is important here. Emotionally, we can begin to act as if certain issues or expression of our freedom is, are, are more central than they should be. And in doing so, the beauty of the gospel can be spoken of as evil. The stronger brother risks making people think about the gospel poorly if he does not handle his freedom well. What's more, the church can be known for its views on secondary issues more than righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't know all of your church cultures, but often I have experienced uh, as a pastor in, in a denomination where uh, a church's name in a, in a community is more associated with needless controversy, things that they say this is more important and we're going to elevate this to this level than with the gospel message. And gospel behavior. You can do this, but you can't do that. It trumps the gospel message and the gospel behavior. No, no church intends that to ever happen. But it does happen because people lose perspective. 
and it's easy to do. And failure to adequately and lovingly work through these absolute convictions and preferences has done a great harm to families and to churches and to even denominations, whole groups of people. The enemy has historically had a field day with these kinds of situations. But if love and freedom are taken together, it can create the kind of obedience that is acceptable to God and approved by men. Living in that tension together, both mankind and God will say, that is Four things to consider is to consider the impact on unity. Paul prizes unity in the body of Christ. We, as a church, should prize unity in the body of Christ. He exhorts us to put effort into maintaining some kind of beautiful gospel-centered unity. In other words, if you are passionate about your freedom, be sure you are equally passionate about unity. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upholding. The posture of a, of, a, of a believer in his communal pursuits, continual pursuits, is to create peace and mutual edification for growth. So as we pursue our freedom, we need to ask ourselves regularly, will this help bring peace and will it help others grow? Or will this create spiritual harm on other people? Now you need to know that in Western America, we love we love rugged individual freedom, right? We, we just, man, we, we are all about, I'm, I'm inclined to think about me first. Rugged individuality. Other cultures, like the Far East, cherish the group over the individual. So this idea of limiting our freedoms in deference to another is a bit countercultural to each other. We, we'd much rather think about me, myself, and I. We don't like that word team or family because that means that we've got to work some stuff out. So let me just encourage you to realize that there is something really important about unity, valuing unity. Number five. We need to be mindful about conscience. Uh, as we consider our freedom, we need to keep in mind that obedience is not just an issue of right and wrong as identified by an external code of conduct. Obedience also includes an internal issue as it relates to your conscience. There are many things in life that don't really fit neatly, don't really fit neatly into categories that are always clear and consistent. <clears throat> and for those issues, we need to activate our conscience 
that will help us decide between what is right and wrong. James says, if any of you needs wisdom, what are you to do? The challenge here is that there were some who had very weak consciences. Very weak. And those with weak consciences struggle with what to do and with what not to do. Romans uh, verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned. Here's the issue of conscience. I can't, I can't eat this. I can't drink this. I can't celebrate this because it is going to affect my conscience. Because that eating is not rooted in a deep faith and trust. And for whatever reason, and for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So there's two things that Paul says about this issue in conscience. Of, of the conscience in verse 22 and 23. First, it is a personal matter. We are not the collective, I'm going to do a Star Trek thing, we are not the board. <laughs> Anybody? Donna, you got it, right? Yes, I did. It's the board. <laughs> if those of you who don't understand it, YouTube it, look up board and go, oh, oh, that's weird. But it's this collective thinking that we all kind of act together in this strange cultic kind of I don't know, it's weird. <laughs> but we don't want that. There are, there are issues of personal conscience. In other words, there needs to be some level of personal determination as to what you do or what you should not do. A personal determination. Did you hear that? There's points where your personal determination is what you do personally. And it might be because of your where you are in your faith. It is your personal determination. The standard for right or wrong in these issues that are way down on the preferential or faith spectrum sometimes comes from your heart. And this is where I'm at. If we could just use those words more often, this is where I'm at in my faith, as opposed to, this is where I'm at in my faith. This is where I'm at, and I'm struggling, and pushing these boundaries. I'm figuring out. I'm discerning from God. I haven't landed yet. But this is where I'm at on this issue. Those are issues of conscience. And so secondly, Paul also identifies that if a person is internally convinced that something is wrong, or if, if he is unsettled such that he is doubting whether something is even right anymore, then to act against his conscience would be wrong. God gives us that internal mechanism to not just open the floodgates and everything. God says, no, let, let me kind of open it up and some of you can only handle a trickle right now and you're going to grow in a trickle, drop by drop. Some of you, that gauge opened up wide. Some of you, it's still closed because you're still trying to grow in your faith or figure out what does it mean? How do I do this? But we also need to kind of figure out if, if peer pressure or social acceptance or some other motivation is driving you more than faith in God does, then it's wrong. 
I'm not sure that this means that we are always 100% uh, about everything that we do. I think we can walk into things and go, I'm not sure this is where I'm at with this. Some of you are plagued with doubt often, and you feel guilty when you shouldn't. Because you think, man, i got to have an answer right here. I, I need to know black or white. And God's going, no, you know what? I've given you a conscience on these issues. Don't be plagued by doubt. Don't feel guilty about not knowing or watching other people express their faith in this way or restricting their faith in this way. Stop it. Step into this. And be okay with the tension. But we should be asking closely, looking at our heart and asking ourselves, what is motivating me here? Am I doing this unto the Lord? Can I give thanks for this? Am I doing this in faith? One of the reasons that Paul is saying this is because he doesn't want one brother to cause his other brother to violate their conscience. It really requires us to really be in tune with our brothers and sisters, doesn't it? I want to be careful here. I don't want to violate your conscience on this issue. I want to be careful about not over-restricting you. I got, so how do I know you? Can we have some conversations? So Paul is elevating the value and importance of the conscience and how we approach our liberties. Paul is just doing what we need to be doing. He's doing some theological and ethical triage all the time. Where, where, where do I put this? He's showing us that, that unity and love for your brother or sister, your gospel witness, and a brother's conscience are closer to the center than even your freedoms. And even if, even if, even if your brother is wrong, we still need to think carefully about how to use our freedom. So let me talk to the stronger brother right now. Even if you know that your brother or sister is wrong on an issue, the way to approach that is not this way. I know. You're really, you're the weaker brother. You're the weaker sister. I know. Really, this is, really shouldn't be a moral issue at all. But you're the weaker brother. So I'm going to repress. I, I'm not going. I'm not going to express my freedom here for your sake. Now that's that's not how this works out. In fact, we say, "Well, you can you tell me how this has grieved you? Can, can you explain how this? I am so sorry for how this has affected you in this way. Can I walk with you while saying I will withhold my freedom?" I love you more than I love the freedom that I have been bought to Which is a scary thing. We love our freedom. But I love you more than the freedom that has been purchased. So let me just kind of wrap up a few things. I want us to think, as I, I've been wrestling, there's all kinds of dynamics going on here. One of it is that we as a church, we, in light of what has been said in chapter 14, we need to really value unity and diversity. We need to value it. The, the, 
this vision needs to be grounded in the framework of just really solid doctrine, robust doctrine, where value, where valuing, an, where we value an atmosphere of theological freedom with humility and a non-divisive spirit. For those of you who are are more Baptistic, I love you. I think you're wrong, but that's okay. We're not going to be divisive on this issue. The church will stand on its robust theological convictions. The elder, that's, we are a Presbyterian church, but you know what? We want to welcome all those who have different convictions. When it comes to the absolutes, we are standing together for the sake of the gospel. We need to value and elevate this need for unity. But this text also helps us to see our freedom and our preferences through a lens of love for one another and a love for the gospel. Man, we want to see. Man, Christ has purchased these things for me. But you know what? I love you. And I love the gospel. So we're going to be careful about flaunting our freedom. And we're not going to become overly emotional about what is mine and my rights. We've got to be careful. We, we need to be careful not to use my, my freedom or your freedom as a weapon. As well, we need to be careful that your preferences, your preferences are informed by Scripture and that you distinguish between what you have just chosen to do and what the Bible commands everyone to do. There's two big differences here. Did you hear it? Mm-hmm between your preferences of what you want to do and what the Bible commands. Those are two big, different areas. Don't just use your preferences as a weapon for needless guilt. And lastly, remember that the effect on others is always a part of our decision-making process. It is never right to not consider the impact on others. It's never right. It always needs to be part of your thought process. And sometimes it may require you to modify your behavior or your actions. What do you do privately between you and the Lord? But what do you do socially and with others? Your freedom is not just about you. So going back to the beginning, remember what, what uh, Martin Luther had to say at the very beginning? He said this, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful of servants and subject to everyone. Because that's how we, we work this out, how we live in so as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come together desiring to profess the name of Christ with one voice. We express our unity as a body, as one body, under the Lordship of Christ. We come professing absolutely that Jesus Christ is Lord that he has saved us from our sins. And we come here to this table where Christ is present with us and we eat and drink 
from his body and his blood. And you hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you, and you go, Amen. The blood of Christ poured out for you, and you go, Thanks be to God. Yeah. And we do that together as a diverse body. Just as thick about bread comes from many different plants. Many different plants. The wheat from many different hills. The grapes come from not just one little grape. The wine and the juice comes from many different different And so we come together eating and drinking from a diverse table from a unified God who has saved you for his name.